Welcome to the HR Chat Show, one of the world's most downloaded and shared podcasts designed for HR pros, talent execs, tech enthusiasts, and business leaders. For hundreds more episodes and what's new in the world of work, subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, and visit hrgazette.com. What are the secret ingredients when implementing an HR operating model? In this episode of the HR Chat Show, we highlight some of the key steps needed to successfully design and transition to a future state operating model. Hey, this is Bill Bannum, your host today, and my guest on this episode is Dr. Dieter Veldsman, Chief Scientist, HR and OD over at the Academy to Innovate HR. Hey, Dieter, welcome to the show today. Thanks so much, Bill. It's great to be here with you and welcome to all the listeners. We're having a nice chit chat before we hit record. I've got a good feeling about this chap. I think we're going to have a good conversation. Okay, here we go. So uh, you are an award-winning HR executive and psychologist, uh, CHRO of the year 2021, organizational design and development expert, and a keynote speaker. Gosh, you've done it all. Um, (laughs) Why don't you take a couple of minutes and introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, Bill. So as you've already mentioned, my name is Dr. Dieter Feltzman. I'm currently the chief scientist at the Academy to Innovate HR. My background lies in organizational psychology. In the last 15 years or so, I've spent in various capacities, either in organizational design or development or in human and employee experience design, um, as well as then later also venturing into the strategic HR space, where eventually I became the group CHRO for a multinational insurance business. Um, on the other side, I'm also a bit of a closet academic and researcher, so I am involved with quite a few universities um, in different research capacities. So looking at things like what does the future of work look like? What does the future of HR look like? The HR professional of the future and how do we proactively build those skills and enable people to have a meaningful and a fruitful career going forward? So that's a little bit about me. I'm very passionate about the HR field and find the work really meaningful and challenging at the same time. Thanks for tuning in to the HR Chat Podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. And now, back to the conversation. So you and I connected because I saw a post by you on LinkedIn. Uh, and I was like, I need to I need to get in touch with this chap. Uh, and it was called, what are the secret ingredients when implementing an HR operating model. Before we get into the lessons that you shared, can you explain why orgs should consider moving away from traditional HR operating models? And as you put as you put it, letting go of the past and embracing a new paradigm and ecosystem operating model. Perfect, Bill. I'm going to try and highlight that in, in four key points. And I think the first one has to start with the fact that we're dealing with a very different consumer today than what we did a couple of years ago. Now, whether you're in the B2C market or whether you're in the B2B market, there is this general sense that people want things that are highly personalized, tailored to their own particular needs, and people drive and want instant gratification in terms of the organizations that they deal with. Now, the reason I mention that and I start there is organizations are going to have to rethink their go-to-market strategies and channels, and that kind of filters into the conversation around organizational design and how do we design differently from the outside in with the new consumer in mind. I think the second part that also contributes to that is really around heightened levels of scrutiny pertaining to sustainable practices in organizations. So I think there is a lot more pressure on organizations today to be transparent pertaining to their supply chain, 
you mentioned ecosystemic type of thinking. So who is it that we work with and who do we collaborate with in order to bring our products and services to market? And I think that's got a significant implication, not only on your organizational design and culture, but very much on the way that you show up within the workplace and the image and the messages that you portray in an authentic way when you actually go to market. The third one, and that's probably the hot topic at the moment, is some of the changes pertaining to generative artificial intelligence, but also aligned to that, I think very much around how models of work are changing. Now, whether you want to there refer towards things like remote work or hybrid work, or on the other side, looking at things like the four-day work week, I think the central message for us there is that the way in which we work and the way that employees and organizations engage with each other is starting to change. We also find quite a significant skill shortage in a lot of the markets, and we find huge displacement of labor due to various reasons around the world. And I think that's playing very much into the talent strategies and then at the back end into the organizational designs that we put in place in order to be able to execute on strategy. And the last one, Bill, I want to mention is, and I almost referred to it earlier, is to say this changing notion about the employer-employee relationship. I think it's been a tough couple of years, and I think there's been some great moments where trust have be, has been built. I think on the other side, there's also been some moments where trust has been lost in the process. And ultimately, what we are starting to see is that the mutual expectations of what employers want from employees and what employees expect from a good employer is starting to change. We're starting to see this contract shifting and we're starting to see different needs being articulated. And yes, people talk about human-centric organizations. That does, that does not mean that it is only about the human being. It means it's about both parties being at the table and viewing work through a different lens. So in short, those are kind of the things that I think is influencing this paradigm shift that we are currently seeing to ask the question, but what does success look like for an organization in the future? And do you have the design that's going to enable your strategic intent? And I think it's an interesting question for organizations to ask themselves. Once in a while an event series is born that shakes things up, it makes you think differently, and it leaves you inspired. That event is Disrupt HR. The format is 14 speakers, 5 minutes each, and slides rotate every 15 seconds. If you're an HR professional, a CEO, a technologist, or a community leader and you've got something to say about talent, culture, or technology, Disrupt is the place. It's coming soon to a city near you. Learn more at disrupthr.co. Okay, thank you, Dieter. So in the aforementioned post, you share 10 ingredients for success. Uh, you've given us, uh, you've teased us a little bit uh, just a moment ago in your previous answer. But now can you take some time and run through each of these and why they matter? Sure, Bill. And I, I think maybe a bit of context to the 10 ingredients. They come from the work that I've done over the years in organizational design. It's almost these underlying principles that we see in successful design. So it's the things that you really need to make sure that your organizational design works during the course of both the shift and the transition to it, as well as then the execution and the implementation further down the road. So the first one is really the fact that you have to start with a data informed as is analysis. And I know it sounds so simple, but a lot of organizations start with the end in mind as opposed to understanding why are we where we are at the moment. You know, I always believe in organizations, there's reasons why things work the way they work. And it's important to understand the history of the organization before we start making recommendations for the future. So the first one is really around data informed as is analysis, have a very clear evidence driven view of where are we currently as an organization. 
The second one I teased out a little bit in the first answer, but it is about having a clear strategic intent. And that's my favorite question to ask executive teams when we work with them is why do you exist and what does success look like in the future? Because very often in the organizational design process, we realize that the strategy is actually not understood and it hasn't cascaded down into the organization. So the design decisions that we make has to be based on a very clear strategic intent that filters through the organization and can be translated into how we are going to work. From an HR point of view, just to throw in that flavor, the next ingredient is around articulating the HR priorities and contribution. So if we know where we're going, strategic intent, what is it that we need to do from an HR component to enable that in the organization? And what role are we going to play? And how are we going to set up to make sure that the organization can achieve its goals? The fourth one, and this is probably the most important one that nobody ever talks about, is you have to have defined clear design principles. And a design principle is a yes, no type of statement. And the purpose of a design principle is to help organizations, whether you've got six levels or eight levels or 12 levels, to have some rules of the game that people can utilize that informs their decision making around how are we going to set up? What is our view pertaining to certain elements when we go to market? What is our view around how certain things will work within the organization? And I almost rephrase, um, I almost refer to these as what are the non-negotiables, those things that has to be there in order for your organization to be successful in your design. That gets us to the next one, which is around a clear overview of critical capabilities. And here I know organizations often fall into the trap to say, you know, we want to be great at these 25 or 30 things because that's going to make us successful. But realistically, you have to decide top five things that you're going to compete on. What are those things that set you apart from the rest of the market? And the reason we have that conversation in the org design context is to be able to understand what are some of those things that we need to put in place and how are we going to put resources behind the elements that's going to matter and bring you competitive advantage. We have to admit and acknowledge as well that we will always have things that keeps the lights on or things that we have to do. But it is really, really important from a strategic point of view that you know what those differentiators are and what those solutions are going to look like for you in future. The next one for me is a clear blueprint. And if I can use the analogy of building a house, you want to have a plan in place that says, this is where the rooms are going to be. This is where the piping is going to be. This is how the electricity is going to work. And a clear organizational design blueprint is a very, very simple visual depiction of how are the different parts of the organization and these different capabilities that I've spoken about now going to work together. And what is the logic that we are going to put in place in terms of how the organization operates? Now, there's a lot of really good blueprints out there that you can utilize as a starting point. And it is important to know and understand that there's no such thing as a perfect organizational design. Every design has got benefits and limitations. And it's important that you are aware of that whenever you make a decision pertaining to what the blueprint is that's the best fit for you, given what your strategy is going to be. The next ingredient is then when we start getting down to the detail. It is about having clarity on workflow, roles, and technology. And this is really around how will work be done within the model. And as much as in the organizational design context, we need to have the 50,000 feet view, we also need to be able to really deep dive into the detail to say, what is the tactics that we are going to apply in the design to make sure that we collaborate across different areas, that we don't design in silos, and that the work logic that we want to put in place actually drives through the entire design and all the levels of the design in the right way in order to deliver the successful outcomes that we're looking for. Now, the next one, and I often get teased about this by my colleagues, is this thing around the fact that all designs need to be bad. And what I mean by that is they need to have boundaries, they need to have clear levels of accountability, 
And on the other side, they also need to have very, very clear decision-making authorities in place, which just refers to the fact to say, do we know where the buck stops, where accountability lies in the organization, and are we very clear on that? Because that's an important part of operationalizing the design and making sure that those things actually fit into place. Now, the next one, and probably the most important, is leadership buy-in. And when I refer to leadership buy-in, it's not the things that happen within the room. It's the things that happen outside of the room when we actually start implementing the organizational design. Leaders need to support where we are going, not only from a cognitive point of view, but also from an emotive point of view to really understand what does the behaviors look like and what does it mean for them to really sponsor what this new future is going to look like. Now, Bill, there's something I like to refer to as corridor terrorism that we find in a lot of organizations where everybody agrees around the table. This is a great idea. But when they start realizing what it means for them, potentially loss of status, potentially loss of power, they tune changes once they've left that particular room. And that can be extremely derailing to your design. So if you get one thing right, it is to make sure that you've got leadership buy-in. And the last ingredient I want to mention is a clear roadmap. Sometimes the future design is just too far away and it's too big of a disruption for us in terms of where we are today. There we need to understand what does the interim steps look like? And how are we going to slowly over time with every decision we make in the organization start moving us closer towards this end state, towards this design in terms of how we want to set up? I've seen a lot of organizations make the mistake where they've got a beautiful end picture, but they don't actually spend the time to spell out what is this roadmap going to look like, because that's where the detail starts playing a role. And I think it's an important thing to spend some time on so that you can also celebrate and actually see what progress is going to look like in terms of the milestones that you might hit along you know, a journey that could potentially stretch over a couple of years. So Bill, for me, these are the 10 ingredients for success. They are not necessarily in a linear order, but there is a logical flow to them that organizations can think about whenever they are embarking on an operating model journey or a redesign journey in their organization. Genos North America is a global team of changemakers using emotional intelligence to enhance how we connect, communicate, and collaborate at work. And we are proud to support this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. Transforming essential people skills at work makes a difference to people's relationships outside of the workplace. Using our tools, people become better parents, partners, siblings, and friends. That's why we call our work game-changing for business and life-changing for people. Learn more at genosnorthamerica.com. Wowzer, there's a lot to unpack there. Thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> one, one, one concept, one, one term that uh, jumped out as you we were chatting there and, uh, and re I had to follow up on was this idea of corridor terrorism. Um, <laughs> did, did, firstly, did, did you acquire that? That's, uh, that's, a, that's a good one. That's a powerful one. That's a memorable one. I can't remember whether I coined it or it might have been a colleague that I was working with at the time, but I can remember we started speaking about it as part of an organizational design project that we were on where we had executives that were in a full agreement of what we were trying to do within the room. And in the moment that they left in kind of the side long conversations, we started picking up almost a bit of passive aggressive behavior from their side. Um, and that's where the term was coined. So it's it's said with a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek, but it does refer to the fact that do we know what the unintended consequences of some of the behaviors are, especially when executive leaders speak out about their support or lack of support uh, for some of the design decisions we make. Okay, so what, what do you do then? What, what do you do to ensure that the, the, the executive level buy-in uh, remains? Do you, do you send follow-up emails straight away uh, saying, you know, 
um, reply saying, I, I swear to do these new things. <laughs> but but it, I'm, I'm being tongue in cheek now. Um, what, what, are, what, are those, what are those communication channels needed? What, what are those steps needed by the HR department who, or whomever else to ensure that uh, leadership at the top do carry out on the promises that they make? Yeah, I think the first thing there, Bill, is you have to understand where the discontent is coming from. Very often there's a real reason for it that you need to deal with first before you potentially unknowingly make a recommendation pertaining to something in the organization that is either not going to work or has been tried before. So I always kind of recommend to say, go and find out why people are not buying into what you're selling. And I think that's the first thing that you need to do. The second one is you also need to understand what the dynamics in the room are. There will usually be some powerful players, and it's important to understand what their agendas are outside of just the organizational design project that you're starting to drive. And then on the other end, I don't think it's fixed through things like, and I know you mentioned the tongue in cheek, but you know, sending an email and saying, you know, please give me a thumbs up if you are all on board. I think it only gets there through real meaningful conversations about what does the future look like. What is the realities of what we are going into? And ultimately, people need to make the decision if they are going to be part of that future or not. People underestimate that, that, you know, employee engagement, going into the future, the first thing it is, it starts with the decision to say, but I want to do this. I want to be here. This makes sense for me. And then from there, you know, we can start building on the motivation, et cetera, going forward. And obviously, if all else fails, you have to start understanding where is the need for change coming from and then utilize the sponsor in the right way to have that conversation. Very often you as the HR individual or as the organizational design individual in that situation, you are actually not the one that's initiating this change or that sits with the power and the sponsorship behind the initiative. As much as you are facilitating the process, make sure that you don't by accident almost inherit the responsibility to get everybody on board. That is still a business responsibility that you need to facilitate. And there often, you know, a C-suite um, executive would play a role. CEO plays a very, very important role in terms of getting people on board and making sure that we are aligned in terms of the steps that we need to take and what that's going to look like. To wrap that up, I think an important thing is sometimes your biggest dissenters at the beginning of a journey become your biggest supporters later on in the journey. And some great advice that I received early in my career is to say, you know, don't get upset when people disagree with you or when they are resistant to the course of these processes. It means that they are interested enough that they are willing to expend some energy to really have the conversation. What you should be worried about is if people just keep on agreeing without really considering what does this mean or just keep on saying, yeah, that's fine, we will get there. I think it's much more fruitful to have real authentic conversations, even though they might be a little bit tough at the beginning, but conflict in this context is not a bad thing. It's a tension that is healthy as part of the design process that you need to enable. Okay, okay, thank you very much. I, I want to talk about another post that, that I saw by you, and it was on HRD. And uh, it was called Becoming the CHRO of Tomorrow, Essential Skills for Today's HR Leaders. And in it, you suggest that HR leaders must develop five domains of expertise to become tomorrow's impactful CHROs. Um, can you tell us more? But I'm going to challenge you because we are running out of time today. Uh, I'm going to challenge you to answer in two minutes or less. Go. Perfect. I think the first one they Bill, is really... And we always talk about business acumen, but I think what I would refer to there is really this ability to understand the complexity of what's happening in the market, making sense of that, bringing it into the organization and understanding as a CHRO, what do we need to do from an HR point of view to enable my business in this context? You know, the world is a lot more complex today than what it was, and this ability to interpret, to make sense of is going to be quite an important domain. 
Second one that we talk a lot about is data literacy. It doesn't mean that you have to be a data scientist. What it means is you need to be able to interpret evidence to make informed decisions and tell stories for people about what the future is going to look like. Third one is digital agility. For us, that really refers towards the fact to say, can you adopt a digital mindset? How open are you towards failure? Um, how open are you to experiment? And can you leverage things like technology in order to achieve your goals and scale your impact? The fourth one, people advocacy, you know, that's something we've been speaking about in HR for years. For me, particularly about how are we going to drive cultures of well-being that people can flourish whilst organizations can also be productive. And I think the CHRO plays a critical and a key role in that. And the last one really is something that I just referred to as delivering impact. And that really refers to how do you show up as a CHRO? How do you go about holding conflicting ideas in terms of the paradox that you need to deal with in this complex world together? How can you bring people and allow them and help them make the decisions that's going to take them forward? How do you think about things like problem solving, your inherent curiosity about what's happening in the world? And how do you engage people? Because ultimately the CHRO role is a stakeholder engagement role. And it's so important, I think, especially in future where the CHRO is going to have quite a strong external focus as well in terms of the multi-layered stakeholder environment that they need to manage there. And that will be from boards to societies to industry bodies, as well as then internally in terms of also acting at times as this guardian of governance and to make sure that we make humane and responsible decisions within the organization. So those five for me, business acumen, data literacy, people advocacy, digital agility, and then lastly, the way which you show up, which I've just termed delivering impact. I don't know if it's two minutes, Bill, but I hope I've gotten close at least listeners at home have been scribbling away really quickly because uh, <laughs> they're like oh bill's only given it two minutes okay we get all this time um right that takes us towards the end of this particular conversation before we do wrap up how can our how can our listeners connect with you um so maybe you might want to share your socials your email um also how can they learn about AIHR, and I believe you're involved with uh, mindset management. So maybe they can learn a bit more about them if you want to share that URL too. Perfect. Thanks so much, Bill. I think the easiest place to find me is on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm quite active and very willing to connect and engage there. And then from there, almost refer you back to both AIHR and the work we do. We try to share quite a lot of content that's also um, free and accessible to people across the HR domain from an AIHR point of view. And on the mindset side, um, something similar pertaining to employee engagement and what are some of the newest trends uh, that we find in that regard. So LinkedIn will be the easiest place to, to get hold of me. Excellent. Well, that just leaves me to say for today, Dr. Dieter Feldsman, thank you very much for being my guest. Thanks so much, Paul. Thoroughly enjoyed it. And um, thank you for the invitation. And listeners, as always, until next time, happy working. Thanks for listening to the HR Chat Show. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe and listen to some of the hundreds of episodes published by HR Gazette. And remember, for what's new in the world of work, subscribe to the show, follow us on social media, and visit hrgazette.com.